Hey, this is Ellie from Goaty Tapes, and you're listening to the Foxy Podcast. Welcome to the Foxy Podcast, bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. The show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota, and here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 47 of the Foxy Podcast show. Hope everyone's doing very well out there, wherever you're listening from. 
We started things off with a track called A Promise from the latest Banana Head release, Phones the Public, that came out on Goatee Tapes. Banana Head is the solo project of Zully Adler, who you heard at the top of the show introducing things, who also happens to be the driving force behind Goatee Tapes, a label that's been on our radar from the outset of the podcast show. Adler had actually started the label back in 2007 while still in high school, and he's gone on to forge a very distinctive look and sound within the Goatee Tapes catalog. Through his interest in various printmaking techniques and low-fidelity recording applications, and Goatee has put out releases by a number of artists that we've featured on our show over the years, including Mad Nana, Julian Lynch, Circuit de Zoo, Baronic Wall, Son of Salami, and, and many, many others. In this episode, we'll be talking to Zully about his work with Goatee Tapes and as Banana Head. And we're also going to discuss Casual Junk, a new fanzine that he has written and published that focuses on the work of seven like-minded artists combining interviews, stories, images, theories, and commentary within its pages. But before we get into all this, I'm going to play something from a fairly early Goatee Tapes release. This is Ignatz with The Woman Helped Him off a tape called A Canine and a Kitten in the Car. Thank you. 
So first, can you provide some background about uh, starting up Goatee Tapes? I guess what were some of your early motivations to to get a label going of your own? Yeah, well, I was quite young. I mean, I was maybe 16 when the when the idea came to me. So it's a bit hazy and it's hard to kind of piece together any sort of kind of coherent story. But you know, around that time, I was getting more open to various kinds of music. I had no particular allegiances to any genre, but I liked folk and I like I really like abstract stuff, and I liked more industrial things. And uh, I didn't know much about the the kind of early DIY. I wasn't so familiar with that, but I was aware of all these little labels around Los Angeles. And near the end of high school, I went up to Portland and I encountered some cool little labels there and. They felt like they had these really kind of intimate and familial structures to them. And you can kind of like trace points of connection between different people. And this person would release that person's music and then they'd switch, they'd switch roles. And so it was fun kind of just tracing the connections through these constellations. Uh, and I kind of wanted to be a part of some sort of fabric like that. I didn't know exactly where it all fit in. But at the time, too... My only kind of real creative pursuit was uh, printmaking. And so I had a kind of like, I loved all these little, you know, these little homemade musical items that had their own peculiar print logic. And uh, that was also a motivating factor, definitely. It was just the visual aspect. Yeah, so that, that I guess, follows into what I was just going to ask you about it. I mean, I really, really liked, like, the silk screen. Uh, print aspect of of all the labels that you've done, or all the re- releases that you've done. You know, some of them have these like embossing elements to it. Has that some been something that you've handled from the get go all through all of the releases themselves? Yeah, it 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 has. Uh, sometimes I feel bad for kind of like uh, claiming control over that that part of the operation because it is nice when bands have input when they make covers as well. But yeah, that was definitely something that I considered. And um, as I, you know, once I got to university and I had access to all this cool machinery, like the letterpress and screen printing and stuff like that, I just wanted to kind of try it all out. And I was definitely a little wary of the kind of artisanal, crafty connotations, even though I do embrace craft to a certain extent. I didn't like the kind of rarefied quality of it. Nonetheless, it was just really fun to experiment and try out new things and just figure out the mechanics of these these machines and you know more than anything for me it was always about the kind of the method of production i guess facture would be the word i was use facture like uh the ways things are made and with printing in general uh, there's this guy Dieter roth who who did a lot of printing and he always said that all printing no matter what kind it is is just a matter of smooshing two things together you have you know, your metal type on one end and your paper the other and you smoosh them together. You have your rotary press on one end and your kind of like plate on the other and you smoosh them together. So I like just kind of experimenting with with how paper meets ink in whatever kind of way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, your label has come of age during this this cassette revival. I kind of hate saying that, <laughs> but sure, sure. Uh, it, it definitely is something that's out there uh, that we've seen in, say, you know, about the last five to eight years and I know we could certainly extend it well beyond that but I guess in light of all the changes that we've seen in the music distribution and what have you what do you make of this renewed interest in this format I guess maybe taking into consideration some of the economic factors surrounding vinyls 
resurgence right alongside it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a complicated question. I do feel like people have their own kind of discrete reasons for using these things. But I guess on a basic level, I think people these days involved in in independent music realize that their appreciation for music goes beyond actually what they're hearing. It has a lot to do with album names and song titles and lyrics and um, objects and, you know, different kinds of sensory and social experiences that go along with listening to music. And I think that tapes and vinyl are not necessarily the solution, but they kind of foreground all these other dimensions, all these kind of extraneous factors that are related to the music, these tactile things and interpersonal qualities that kind of modify and extend our appreciation of, of music itself. So I see the tape revival and the vinyl resurgence as a kind as kind of indicators of people's thirst for something that goes, you know, for, to integrate other elements into their musical experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if we want to talk about specifically technologies and the way that these things kind of reconsider our relationship to to media and to music media in particular, I think that people. I think that people assume that this tape revival is kind of advocating analog, but I think it's almost the opposite. It says more like that there's no single technology that's best for music, um, that all of these different media, cassettes, CDs, what have you, kind of provide their own discrete listening experiences. And I know that I listen to different media kind of in equal measure, my iPod as much as my tape player. So. I may not have Spotify, and mainly that's just because I'm lazy, but I think that this tape revival as such is more kind of reconsideration of the, the multiple avenues you can take when listening to music, tapes included. Revival as such is complicated because, you know, I think the people who do this tape thing best, what they're really responding to is how at this specific historical juncture, when tapes have lost their kind of commercial application, uh, and kind of, they kind of just kind of waft around in this ether of undesirable consumer goods. Basically, they can be plucked out of that ether and then kind of reappropriated in different ways. And so, the way we're listening to tapes a lot now is very different than they were before. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that it has become outmoded. It mm-hmm. has become obsolete. And so, trying to kind of say that tapes aren't dead. I think does tape culture a disservice because to a certain extent it's predicated on the kind of slow death of the tape itself. Right, right. Even the, the sound quality even plays on that, you know, too. The fact that like repeated listens sort of wash away the music itself in certain yeah, ways. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think there's a certain kind of there's a emancipatory potential in that too, just because you well for once there's there's a bit of a kind of like memento mori vibe you kind of like come face to face with the half lives of objects and things and stuff like that but beyond that it's um you're kind of exerting a force on the music itself you know like the more you listen to it the faster it goes away and it almost kind of ushers you into the music in a way that you wouldn't otherwise if you're if it was so hands off Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm Well, let's get into our our first uh, block of of music here. And I wanted to start off here with maybe the most recent releases that you've done, I guess, in the past 
half year, maybe slightly beyond that. Mm-hmm. And I thought we would start off here with a track from Jem Jones, a, a Midwesterner. I know that who's done some things for like Night People, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. But uh, this is an actually a pretty impressive release. I mean, a very cohesive, accessible album in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah, it is really an album. I mean, in the way that I usually don't release. Like there is there, you know, this 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 group of songs does go through a kind of. Uh, go through certain changes and they are very developed and they are very considered um at the same time it is somebody in their basement just doing their thing i mean nobody would deny that a lot of people do have the kind of abilities that he that that jim jones has just on a technical level but you know it's amazing to see somebody like with so much i don't know enthusiasm apply himself so so much you know so powerfully to the recordings and that was a huge release for me. I when I when I got that master in, in the mail, I was just kind of floored by it, and the response has been overwhelming too. It's nice to know that it, you know, like when something like this comes along, everybody can kind of agree on it, you know. Right, right. Well, let's uh, let's jump into it. This, so this is Jem Jones with a track called "Rock and Roll Dementia" from a cassette release called "Admiral French Kiss." <laughs>
understand my stupid So I see record and tape labels as being more important than ever now in terms of just navigating the vast uh, musical landscape that exists online. In fact, it can be just so overwhelming trying to keep track of everything. Um, I guess with with digital outlets like Bandcamp and and other avenues where artists can maintain control and and distribute their work directly, for you, what is the significance of, of a label in this day and age? Yeah, it's a, I, this is a good question because labels, you know, everybody has access to each other's music. Labels are kind of on an instrumental level. They've been rendered obsolete. Um, so I see mine more as, you know, as, as a curatorial project that has kind of uh, a creative dimension to it. Uh, it has its own personality. And this is something I think is really cool about music, which I see less in art. I can't help making these comparisons. Is that music labels which are these kind of administrative apparatuses, kind of like galleries or museums. These days they actually have personalities and their own creative agendas, um, really conspicuous ones sometimes, especially in these labels that kind of push a certain aesthetic or or consolidate a particular genre. And so releasing other people's music becomes more of a kind of collaborative uh, and, and intimate project and much more exploratory. Um, I like to think that people who to listen to tapes that I release hear the music refracted through my own particular appreciation for that music. So uh, I put something of myself in it, and I don't want to kind of crowd out the band. This is their show, but I I, I want people to kind of get to know what I find so so great about the music, and that's what's that's where I see the kind of centralizing function of the of the label being at this point. There are so many labels on in this kind of independent sphere that nobody's claiming any sort of dominance for the most part. And the ones they do, they kind of come and go. Things things emerge and then they fizzle. And more and more, I think that the way these little networks cohere around these labels and then shift and stuff like that, it makes for these really interesting nodes that you can tap into and that before they disperse again. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's been this, I guess, plethora of reissues and, and archival releases just coming out weekly it seems um in in recent years do you have any interest of sort of tapping into that and connecting some of the more contemporary artists that you've been working with with things that you've found interesting from the past some more like archival releases and things like that yeah absolutely um it's occurred to me more than once to kind of try to initiate some sort of reissue element of things um or a new kind of project along those lines you know the the reason so many people do it is because there's just so much music uh an Mm -hmm. amazing amount and the fact that things can be unearthed that speak to contemporary sensibilities but are have you know are in these areas that should have been mined already speaks to just how kind of expansive and kind of diverse music's become in the last 30 or 40 years. And I feel like that's what a lot of these reissues focus on. I have to a certain extent dealt with older material. Um, Some of the bands that I've worked with, they give me things that they've, they've made ages ago and we kind of cut it down, piece it together and, and release it just as something, as something new. And in the case of like the Phantom Pain, for example, who, I did a split with um, his songs were recorded 
I think in the mid nineties and they definitely had certain continuities with what was going on in the other music that I was releasing. Um, and when I really thought about it, I thought, you know what, this is, this isn't really so far back. It's only a matter of shades of degrees away from where we are now. So instead of kind of historicizing for lack of a better word, that release, I just kind of tried to bring it into the matrix of the other new stuff that I was releasing. And perhaps there's a line in which you have to cut up and be like, actually, this belongs to a different tradition or a different time. But um, it would be interesting to kind of blur those boundaries mm-hmm. a little bit more. Well, that's a, a nice segue because we're going to play something from uh, the Phantom Pain release to start off the next music uh, break here. But I guess I wanted to ask you here, and I'm, I'm maybe jumping ahead a little bit because sure. um, we are going to talk about this publication that you put out recently called Casual Junk. Mm-hmm. But um, something kind of label-related that you mentioned in the end of the, I believe it's the Mad Nana chapter, and I'm actually thumbing through the copy right now as, <laughs> as we speak. But you had, nice. men- <laughs> you had mentioned um, at the very end about kind of how they operate in Breakdance the Dawn, how they operate. And I'm just going to quote this little uh, paragraph that you wrote. And maybe if we could just build on that, you say, this rotation runs counter to how we usually understand the DIY music economy. Independent musicians see themselves as agents of decentralization, undercutting hierarchies in order to self-produce, self-release, and self-distribute their work. In this regard, DIYs push for self-governance, mimics the absorptive tendencies of corporations which integrate all components of production into single operations. And you go on to write basically saying that how a lot of these bands operate kind of um, goes against that notion. Um, You want to clarify that or do you want to explain where you were coming from when you were writing that? Sure, sure, yeah. Well, this is me kind of ruminating on how how useful this term DIY or do-it-yourself is anymore. Um, The main question being, you know, now that, like you said earlier, now that everybody has their band camp, now that everybody has their kind of individualized platform where they can speak to some sort of anonymous global public, is doing it yourself the question that we should really be asking anymore? And is is that what people kind of contemporary artists and musicians are enacting is this kind of, continuous push towards independence and the the picture i paint between mad nana breakdance the dawn and um negative guest list is that that while all of these uh bands do release their own music they also operate as as labels that release other people's music as well as their own and if you look at how if you look at how they interlink all three of these groups have both have released other people's music have released each other's music various times so they understand that they have <clears throat> everything they need to kind of act independently or autonomously. But despite this, they choose to kind of collaborate, choose to work across these platforms. And I think that that's where things, I don't want to be too teleological. I don't want to speculate about the future, but you know, that seems to be the, the, the next step. Now that we've kind of seen that now that we've gotten to the point where we have everything necessary to do it ourselves. And I do want to kind of call into question some of the entrepreneurial um, tendencies that define this DIY movement. When you re- when you really look at a lot of the old labels that we've come to glorify as these kind of touchstones of punk resistance, like Rough Trade, who just opened up a major store in Williamsburg attached to an Urban Outfitters or something like that, you realize the idea of doing it yourself is not 
kind of it's not antithetical to the growth imperative of kind of of neoliberalism doing it yourself as long as you kind of keep making and expanding and incorporating and things like that so even the whole history of music is defined by this sun records was a was a diy operation you know as was motown but these things you know they change and they develop and but they can still they can still kind of justify their developments using that same logic so i just wanted to destabilize just a little bit how we consider DIY, how provocative that is as a concept and how much it applies to music today. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's jump into the Phantom Pain, a, a track from that Phantom Pain split release that you had mentioned, and then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more than about casual junk in the, in the next section. Yeah. 
dropping off clouds on high. Do they look back when they fall? Petals are dropping off clouds on high. Do they look back when they fall? Do they look back when they fall? Glide across silvery ponds, dodging the ice so slippery. Loons, they glide across silvery ponds, dodging the ice so slippery. Dodging the ice. As I mentioned earlier, you also had recently released this uh, fanzine or this publication called Casual Junk through uh, Goatee Tapes. And um, with this new publication, um, you write about a lot of like-minded artists, um, Russian Zarlog, Mad Nana, Son of Salami, et cetera, et cetera. There's, about seven, there's seven artists that you write about in total. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say they're, they're often pegged as artists as being lo-fi. And in yeah. your introduction, you try to build... Um, this idea, this untapped connotation, and I'm throwing my air quotes in the air right now, yeah, right. Of, of low fidelity. <laughs> um, could you ex- uh, maybe explain kind of the general ideas that you were trying to get across and maybe summarize the ideas behind the, the title uh, Casual Junk itself? Because this is actually taken from something or a quote, I believe, that Russian Zarlog had made. Carlos, yes, the yes. guy in that. Yes, although I definitely kind of pulled it out of his context and used it for my own reasons in a different one. Right, um, right. But yeah, so this uh, untapped connotation. I basically was trying to move beyond the assumptions of authenticity that are usually kind of drawn into orbit with the notion of lo-fi. Um, a lot of times the idea of kind of, you know, embracing the crackle of old media or kind of playing sloppily is supposed to somehow make things more real. Um, but I think that actually what lo-fi does to a certain extent is embrace an artifice that's essential to the recording process, which is that recordings are supposed to, or usually recordings are thought to create their own space beyond the ways that they're made. Recording usually hides a lot of, of what was going on at the time. It hides the way it was recorded. It hides the circumstances in which it was made as well. 
but casual junk or lo-fi is casual junk as a, as the publication lo-fi in the way I explore it is more about how playful home recording strategies actually bring these hidden parts forward. And when they do that, they actually create, uh, they, they bring these barriers to the foreground and they tell you actually this music is, is not in the room with you. It's not kind of in your own individualized atmospheric headspace. This is specifically recorded music and you're not in the room with the band. So tells you it, it, there's a double movement here, basically, in Casual Junk. The first one is that there are all these circumstantial details that do lend the music a lot more specificity, and they contextualize it. But within those details are also the kind of reverberations of the medium itself that tells you this is not the live thing, this is a recording. Casual Junk, as, as a name, the way that Carlos uses it is really interesting, actually. He uses it... Uh, at the beginning of one of, his com- one of his comic books, before the comic books even starts. And it says something like, thank you for reading my comic. Comic books are casual junk in bed- bedroom mythology. And I'm reading into this because I think he just wrote it and he probably wouldn't apply any more analysis to it. But I think what he's getting at is that uh, these kind of uh, off-the-cuff, haphazard, homemade things that don't really ask so much of you. They're not these sacred or sanctified objects or aesthetic experiences. They actually get a power from being so casually done. They, there's something kind of intoxicating about the the slapdash qualities of them. And I basically pair, pair down this term casual junk, casual junk to the two words, casual denoting essentially the, uh, the hobbyistic, loose, and open-ended ways that lo-fi bands record in junk being the kind of reused, repurposed, and flawed machinery and media that they also embrace as part of this kind of casual-making process. The first, uh, the first kind of leading you into all the specifics of the time and place the music was made, and the second, the junk, kind of reminding you that, in fact, this is artificial and that it is kind of something that I've created through these alternate means. Mm-hmm. Well, if I'm not mistaken, you had done some extensive traveling around the world, uh, taking a look at a lot of uh, DIY artists and scenes, what have you. Do the stories and some of the ideas developed within the pages of Casual Junk, I guess, come out of, of those experiences? If mm. Sorry, keep going, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to, I mean, because it, it does focus in on a lot of things from like Australia um, and Europe. Yeah, uh, and, and stuff from the States. So I was just wondering, did some of these ideas take shape while you were visiting these locations and seeing how some of these artists and, and bands and uh, scenes were operating? Mm-hmm. Yes. The, the quick answer is yes. The long answer is for some of it. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, the band is, the, the, the publication is split between these seven bands. Three are American four are Australian and European, split between the two. Um, the three American ones I had already encountered in person living in the States. But the other four I did get to meet in person for the first time while traveling on this trip. And the trip was, it was a, it was a, a fellowship, so I was doing research, but it was very open-ended. And I was basically allowed to kind of follow up all of these, follow up whatever leads kind of presented themselves. So... Traveling around Australia, I happened to encounter Matt Earl from Breakdance the Dawn. I took it as an opportunity to kind of get into his 
headspace for a few days, check out his digs, kind of get into the breakdance zone. And experiences like that at his house, also at Ava from Orphan Fairy Tales house, they definitely launched the ideas that emerge in in the publication. And I didn't know where I was going with it at the time. I mean, this is about 18 months ago at this point, maybe even more than that. Um, but very, very slowly, I realized that what interested me so much about these bands had a lot to do with all of these particularities and the ways they lived and their kind of their their habits and their personal spaces. And when I was allowed to kind of enter these spaces on this trip or otherwise, you know, playing a couple shows with Carlos from Russian Zarlag, for example, these things, all the little bits and pieces illuminated their music for me. And um, Casual Junk was kind of my way of getting to getting to mobilize all of these little details that I found so fascinating and use them as a kind of platform for explicating more theoretical things about music as well. Well, you, you also mentioned in the introduction of, of Casual Junk that, quote, this fanzine is not about music. It's about the people, places, and things that make music possible, the circumstances that give music social life. And um, I guess I was going to ask, why is it, what do you go, um, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought here. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, so you go on to call, uh, like, peripheral information that it's important to you as a writer some of these mm -hmm. anecdotal things and bits about people's lives mm -hmm. do you feel that in some way that this style of music writing is hard to come by i guess in this era of like bloggers and blurbs mm. and things like that that some of the story elements are being left out right right yeah these are yeah these are all good questions and they're things that i've definitely considered um i definitely despite how much I like music journalism and music writing, I don't know enough about it to make sweeping claims about what it's missing or what it has. Nonetheless, I do know that at least compared to art, writing about music is really hard. I mean, in art, you have all of these words to use that designate certain visual or kind of spatial phenomena or figuration and abstraction and, and depth and flatness or, you know, um, and so on. Music, for whatever reason, it feels like it hasn't developed this language. It has a very technical musical language, but otherwise you read a lot that kind of, that does one of two things. Uh, either it is very referential. It says, you know, Jimi Hendrix and uh, the Shags had a baby and that baby had a baby with Justin Bieber, then this would happen or whatever. <laughs> right. uh, um, and then the other one is a lot more kind of um, expressive or, um, or um, evocative, lots of kind of like shimmering cascades of reverb. And I think that there's a place for those two ways of writing about music, but I'm not, what, what intrigues me are more the people that make these things and, and the way they go about making them. And perhaps it's just because sometimes I make music too, is I'm curious about um, the methods by which this came to be. And so dwelling on what is considered peripheral information, which I actually think to be quite central information, <laughs> quite central information is, um, it's just a way of exploring new or kind of like, uh, less immediate ways of understanding music. So I think it is important to describe what you're hearing perhaps, but especially in this little music scene where so much of its, so much of its, um, potency, so much of its appeal uh, comes from the the 
the intimacy and the contact between producers and consumers and producers and producers and even consumers and consumers, um, that these little details actually would figure into your understanding of music uh, more so than necessarily if you're buying uh, a CD off of a major label um, or or download off of iTunes for that matter. But um, the things that I discussed in relation to what we're hearing in music, like these circumstantial details as well, they fold back into what we're talking about here in terms of describing music and describing people because what lo-fi music does so well is even on an oral level draw in all of these kind of... Um, all of this like dross from the background and kind of bring in all these contingent factors that we usually don't think is central to music. And so I wanted to extend that to the writing style uh, itself. And maybe this thing is specific to lo-fi. Maybe it's not so important to enact this when we're talking about uh, new age or kind of cosmic or whatever, or punk or anything. But I felt like it was particularly, it was a particularly interesting way to navigate this this kind of music sure well along with the uh the publication itself comes this nice companion compilation that you put together and i, I guess bef- i'm actually we're gonna avoid playing tracks from it i we've i've selected out some tracks that just come from the artists that are featured in the publication itself but yeah. in terms of the compilation i liked how it's just not this kind of run-of-the-mill mix you actually kind of weaved it together almost like kind of a a radio documentary or something where there's actually spoken bits to mm-hmm. introduce each artist. Um, just explain how why I guess you chose to do it in that way rather than just go, okay, here's two tracks from Mad Nana, here's right. two tracks from this band, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, I... Um... Well, the introductions, part of that was just a practical concern. How do I differentiate between each band and make sure people know what they're listening to without necessarily having them follow everything in a, in the liner notes or something like that? But in general, considering how much significance and how much weight I put on things that are beyond the music, I definitely wanted to incorporate those elements. So there are bits of interviews and funny little anecdotes and monologues as well as, um, and I also let the kind of uh, the ends of the, the the ends of the tapes that they sent demos on kind of record out. So at the end of the Tracy Trance section, you have a bit of, of a spoken piece from a part of the Odyssey, basically, because that's what he sent me the demo on, and I kind of wanted to provide that kind of that angle on seeing through the layers of how this thing was made. So you, there's me applied on top of the music by the band, applied on, on top of the tapes that they use that are usually recycled. So I want to get that kind of that sedimentation and give that, give that a, a presence in the music. Um, so much of, you know, I realized going into casual junk that this is my perspective on these bands and it's very, it's, it's colored by the way that I see this music. And so I definitely didn't want it to be, to, to be treated as some sort of, uh, universal or objective account of how these things should be, should be heard. So I wanted to put my voice in the mix in these kind of little introductory remarks, which are quite dry and ridiculous sounding just to kind of, <laughs> <laughs> just to kind of remind you that you know this is in fact my selection of the music. I mean, in Orphan Fairy Tale, for example, she gave me something like eight tapes, eight C90s to choose music from. That's like 
hours and hours and hours of music. So this isn't exactly a dispassionate account of what she wanted represented. This is me listening through and finding the little, the little parts that I'm most enthusiastic about. Sure. Well, um, I almost feel like I should have you record uh, some uh, kind of introductory stuff with the uh, effects and everything. For <laughs> <laughs> so, but um, give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we are going to start off this uh, this next block of music. I thought it was fitting since uh, you, like you said earlier, that you uh, kind of lifted the title from of Casual Junk from uh, Russian Czar Lager Carlos. That we will start off this first set with a track from his Community Death Tube LP came out a few years back on Night People Records. So this is Russian Zarlag. I can feel it on my skin, volunteer. I can feel it on my skin and clothes. I was hoping that that, that test would ease my suspicions. But the effect was the opposite. I'm more convinced than ever, volunteer. We've we've got to find a way to expel these feelings, or at least come to terms with them. Hmm. I know. Perhaps the ancient bleach party dog calendar can give us some helpful advice to come to terms with this strange unknown energy. But before I open up the bleach party vaults, I've got to get permission from higher ups first. If you don't mind, let me make a quick call to Club Hand 9. You can chew on a chain for all I care. I've got problems. I've got... I've got problems. Do it.
So in addition to um, running Goatee Tapes, you've also been recording under the name Banana Head um, for, for quite a few years now. And um, I guess I wanted to ask you how, how that project, uh, how it began, and I guess how did that take shape? I mean, I know earlier on you said that with Goatee Tapes, you were kind of interested in starting that more from a, I guess, from an artistic angle, you know, mm-hmm. wanting to apply some of the printmaking processes and like more of a curatorial thing. But where did music come into play for you? Yeah. Um, it came into play pretty late. I, uh, I had already been releasing other people's tapes for a few years. And so the first banana head thing, it's probably, you know, the 20th, 20th or 30th thing in the catalog. And I used to say when people asked me how it started, I used to say that, uh, once I knew I, I could, I had the means of production, I felt more compelled to be creative. And this was a very kind of, uh, naive marxist statement on my part but it's something that is it's still it still holds water in a way you know once i realized that okay you know what i am a part of this community and i do have my own presence it's worth i there was a certain confidence that went along with that and i felt like you know i had a you know i i had a right to, to try <laughs> it as well um you know i don't really I don't. I don't usually see myself as the kind of free spirit who uh, who can really make very moving music. I usually leave that to to, to other people. But um, I knew I had ideas that I wanted to sort out. And the first bit I had tape was just a, a weekend in my apartment one summer, and I just kind of blasted it out. And the songs had kind of been written on the guitar, but I basically went for it. And in retrospect, it's still kind of my favorite because it was just this really kind of immediate impulsive and quite juvenile attempt at making music and so uh it's still almost my favorite um uh but as as the years have gone on i've realized more and more as well that making music was also just another way of kind of integrating myself into other parts of this uh into other parts of this community playing shows is the perfect example i I get no particular satisfaction out of performing in front of people. It's I get more or less the same satisfaction as I get when I'm playing alone for myself. But I realize that, you know, you play a show, you get to meet these cool bands, you get to hang out at this venue, you know, things like that. And it really does kind of solidify points of entry into into new areas of music. And that was definitely made concrete for me while I was traveling around on that grant. And I realized that, if I booked a show through a local through a local contact in each city, I could basically say, "All right, I want these bands to play with me," and I got to see my favorite bands in that city. And there was just kind of like it anchored my entry into a new locality that I made, basically had never been to before, and it gave it gave me a sense of purpose and a sense of confidence and kind of like um, exploring that music scene. Sure. Yeah. Well, you, you know, as you've uh, as things have progressed, I mean, you can tell there's been a noticeable shift from that maybe uh, juvenilia <laughs> that you mentioned <laughs> with that first effort. And I and I and I don't. I'm not being dismissive. I like that first tape a lot. Um, but yet, yet, the newer stuff that you've done has this really, I don't know, kind of late night, really washed up, almost R and B crooner style to it. Especially yeah. this new tape of yours. Um, how, how did we get from that guy in the apartment to this, where you're at now? I mean, what has kind of fed into that? 
Uh, well, you know, for me, of course, maybe I can't see uh, the progression as clearly as uh, as somebody else can because I feel like there is there's a lot of stuff that runs through all of it. Um, and the crooner, the the crooner kind of motif, I feel like has always been present. There's mm-hmm. been this kind of mopey, melancholy thing throughout, and I can't help but think that that is more kind of like um, an unconscious response to being a kind of uh, a 25-year-old white male in independent music. You know, I see, uh, you know, what? why am I here? How, what am I kind of contributing to a community that's already dominated by people just like me? And so I can't possibly represent any sort of the marginalized groups in independent music. The only thing I can really do is speak to and even inflate and live the contradictions of being a white solo male singer, basically. So I take, I, I basically took all my favorite things from all my favorite male singers, like Roy Orbison and Otis Redding and things like that. And I just kind of tried to tease out the most awkward bits and pieces from them. And I think that even on the early stuff that might have much, might be more in dialogue with 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 rock with a rock genre or kind of like uh, rock motifs. They're all dealing with this kind of exaggerated masculinity mixed with this kind of despondent genius thing that's that's associated with so many musicians. And I just wanted to kind of I just wanted to fool with that basically. Mm-hmm. Well, one one of the things that's kind of interesting, uh, not only in terms of what you are doing with Banana Head, but I look uh, to a number of the artists that are uh, in casual junk, uh, someone like Son of Salami or mm. uh, Tracy Trance. So these guys are really playing with just like, cla- you know, pop, the pop songbook, if you will, like something Absolutely. that's like just classic songwriting and not in this sort of ironic way in any way. It just very, yeah. very direct appreciation, but applying different means to that. And uh, yeah. is that something that appeals to you? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a fine line, you know, because I think you are right. There is a genuine affection for pop music, commercial music on the part of all of these bands. And I think that's almost the I think that's almost the characteristic that distinguishes them from previous waves of independent music that had more of a kind of anti-establishment agenda. Um, but the way, of, of course, the ways that these guys record music um, kind of punctures the authority of these pop formulas, you know. So there is still a subversive element where they take they they hold up the paradigm of pop music, and then they can't really hold it up strong enough, and it falls at the end, you know. So some of Sony's songs are very very sumptuous in a way. And, I do get a kick out of listening to them and they do kind of, uh, I, they, they do as I, as I write in the book, put my hips in motion, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but at the same time, it's all, it's all knowing that something is amiss. And what I find so, so fascinating about the way they do it is that the, the critique is not established symbolically or in their language. They don't use notes and music to kind of undo the, the, the pop sensibility. They use the actual, methods of recording to do it. The way Son of Salami records, the way Tracy Trance records, that's what actually kind of pulls the rug from under the pop song. So it's not it's not so much a uh, a genre based strategy. It has a lot more to do with the ways that they make music. Yeah. Well let's um 
Let's get into, I guess, your take on pop music here with a <laughs> track from uh, The Goon House, which was originally a 7-inch, if I remember correctly, and then this was re-released yeah. on tape. This yeah. is uh, Grim in the Fridge. Any, um, I have to ask, and if you don't want to, sure. what, what, what is the meaning behind Grim in the Fridge? <laughs> Because I always want to uh, say grime in the fridge, and I realize yeah. that's not that's not it. It's grim in the fridge. Yeah, I wish there was some deep meaning there, but I literally did. I, when I was recording that song, I had a friend over, and I was hungry, and I opened the fridge, and there was nothing in it. And I said, God, it's grim in the fridge. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have one of those moments where <laughs> we're having those at our household at the moment. It's very grim in the fridge. So. Yeah, yeah. I guess it is an ongoing thing for me as well. But it kind of like summed up that moment of, uh, yeah, creative starvation for me. <laughs> All right. Well, here is uh, Grim in the Fridge from Banana Head. And thanks so much, Zully, for uh, taking the time to chat with us. It's my pleasure. It's been great.
thought we'd bring things full circle there to round out this show. That was a track from PJ's, which was a collaboration between Zully Adler and Ignatz from a tape release called Family Talks. We heard Pillow Lump. And I want to thank Zully once again for taking the time and chatting with us this week. If you'd like to check out the complete playlist for the tracks played on this show, I'd encourage you to head over to freeformfreakout.com. And if you click on the links, it'll take you directly to the Goatee Tapes website where you can get more information about those releases and uh, ordering them as well. But in the meantime, if you have any questions for me, you can always get in touch with me at fffreakout at hotmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>